Hello again. Long time no see. That was a very joyful song of praise. Um, I would, however, like to share a sadness with you. Can I for a moment? Um, It has been my practice over the years to, um, when I sometimes find myself alone in this building, to walk through the building and to pray and to ask God to bless the ministry of Valley Bible Church, and I'll walk through the hallways and the corridors and come into the auditorium and go in the classrooms and pray for everything that takes place here. And this uh, last Friday, I was here by myself in the afternoon, and I decided it's been a while. I need to walk throughout this church building, and I need to pray for the ministry of Valley Bible Church. So I started in the, the large corridor over on this side in the new wing, And I went into the great room and I began to pray in there. And then I went into the classrooms over on the other side. And I was saddened. Because I looked up on the walls and there were charts with kids' names. There were Bible verses. There were pictures from Sunday school stories from the curriculum. All frozen in time from March. This came to a halt. And it saddened me that our children are not getting the same kind of teaching and attention that maybe the rest of our church does. We, your adults are here, and I appreciate the parents bringing their kids, and we want you to bring kids. Uh, as you saw, a youth group, uh, middle school and high school, they're being well taken care of. And, and yet we've had to lay aside our children's ministry, and it's not a good thing. It's not good. In fact, I went home and I told Tara about it, and she said, call it for what it is. It is evil. It is. There is evil afoot um, in our nation right now. We need to recognize the battles that we are in. We always face a spiritual battle. I mean, our country is torn apart with division, with racism and political Things and the politicization of the virus. Uh, We are in dire straits. And I would just invite you and I pray, would you, I'm asking you, would you join with me in praying for our kids? Not just this moment, but I mean on a regular, regular basis. Would you join with me in praying that God would once again fill up these classrooms soon, very soon? to overflowing in all the rooms and the nursery. I walked in the nursery and babies' diapers aren't being changed in there. Would you join with me in praying that God would fill? It's a building, I know, but I want to see, and I know that you want that as well, for God to do something special, for him to bring us back to normal. I, uh, the Bible says, you have not be- because you ask not, and some of the things we should be praying for are those. Uh, God, would you defeat this virus soon? I mean, we probably don't pray that enough. Would you bring healing to our nation? Would you bring unity to our nation and to the church? Because evil is afoot and dividing families and churches and the nation, and we need to recognize it for what it, for what it is. So, I challenge you to pray for those things on a regular basis, but I invite you to join with me in praying right now for them, and would you pray with me?
We praise you, Father, that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. This universe, this world is under your feet. And we have been crucified with Christ and buried with Christ and raised with Christ and seated with him at the right hand of the Father. We are there with him in our position. And we pray with the Apostle Paul that you, O God of peace, would crush Satan under our feet. The enemy wishes to destroy our families, our friendships, our church, our nation. And we pray, Father, for unity. I pray for your people to rise up and to live godly lives. Lord, if we need to repent of sin, bring that about. Purify your church, your church in this world, in this nation, Valley Bible Church, in our families. Would you once again, by your grace, fill these classrooms to overflowing with children because their souls are important and their brothers and their sisters and their moms and their dads and their grandmas and their grandpas. They're precious in in your sight and you've given us the responsibility to make disciples and to teach and to baptize. We pray that you would fill this place with life once again, that you would defeat the enemy in his wiles to keep the church down and discouraged. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. Lift our spirits, Lord God. Answer our prayers. We pray for our leaders, for the mayors locally, for our governor, for our president, that each of them would repent of sin and trust in Christ and make decisions that are based upon wisdom, that you would use them not to curry favor, not to be popular, and not to wield power against people, particularly your church, but that they would be instruments in your hands for righteousness' sake. We pray that we would be able to therefore live tranquil and peaceful lives before you. These things we pray in the name of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 7. We have a longer passage, verses 1 through 24. But I want us to read just the first 10 verses to get a flavor and a head start on what's happening. Um, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I invite you to stand at the reading of God's word and to please pay attention to the public reading of scripture. The word of God, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, rather. The word of God. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because of the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time 
has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we have seen from uh, the video of base camp and knowing that uh, um, family camp is going on, that uh, camping season is upon us, right? How many of you have been camping this season? Not enough. You need to get out and go camping. Um, One little known uh, uh, interpretation or rather translation of the Bible is called the Goodspeed Translation. And it uh, translates John 7 to this way. It says, but the Jewish camping season was coming. What happens in chapter 7 is uh, the Feast of Booths. Uh, we're going to talk more about it later on. And in the next couple of weeks, too, we'll, we'll have much more to say about it. The Feast of Booths, Sukkot, it's called, or the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, where people made these tents, these outdoor um, booths, and they lived in them. And it was one of the great feasts. And uh, it was a, a great time of uh, uh, people all coming to Jerusalem. The three main feasts were, of course, uh, Passover and then uh, Pentecost 50 days later. And then the Feast of Booths was in, in the fall, and it was a time to celebrate the harvest. And people made all these tents and these boughs and, and these booths called Sukkot, and they lived in them to celebrate the harvest. And it was the most joyful feast of all for Jerusalem and for the Jews. You'd think the Passover might be important. You'd think the Pentecost might be important. You'd think that the Day of Atonement that just preceded this would be a joyful time. But this was the time that was really the most joyful. And you may know that right now. The joy of camping is really something that many people are experiencing Tara and I went uh, uh, camping last week as well. Uh, Base camp was going on that weekend. Today we have church camp going on. But we went camping at a place called Island Park, Idaho. It's one of our favorite places to go. It's just outside, just east of Yellowstone Park. It's a long ways, though. It's about a six-and-a-half to almost seven-hour drive. And uh, we wanted to do some fishing on Henry's Fork of the Snake River. So I was off that week, and we slowly got all of our stuff together, our sleeping bags and the tent and the food and all the stuff with great anticipation. Gassed up the day before, drove this long way. We didn't get as early a start as we wanted to. Got all the way to our campsite. By the way, you know you have to reserve campsites online now? I mean, when I was a kid, you just got in a car and drove wherever it was, and you just camped. But now you have to have reservations. And so we got to our campsite, and it was nice because it was just on the edge of the river. And uh, I walked down to the river, and I could see the fish rising. And I was there to fish, and I'm thinking, we need to get camp set up and eat because I want to get out for the evening fishing and get out there with my fly rod. So I said, Tara, help me undo th- get things out of the car, and you can start getting dinner ready, and I'll get the, the tent set up. And we were looking forward to it because last summer we brought, bought a new REI tent and we only used it a couple of nights and we were uh, looking forward to using it again. So I was bringing out the sleeping bags and I got the REI bag and brought it out and the REI bag had an REI tent in it. I mean, rather it had an REI sleeping bag in it. <laughs> so I misspoke. I brought the wrong bag. It was a bag, sleeping bag, instead of a tent. So Tara and I had a friendly discussion about that for a little while, about 
who was responsible for bringing the tent. And she was very gracious, obviously. But we were beside ourselves. What do we do? We have all of our camping equipment, but we don't have a tent. So there was no cell service. We decided to drive to Rexburg, Idaho, the town of any size, about a 45-minute drive away, went to a Walmart, and we got one of the last two tents on the, on the shelves. Shows you how camping is so popular right now. People want to get out and camp, and they're buying camping gear like crazy. Is that true at REI right now? Yeah, you bet it is. We talked to the camp host, and he said the whole summer it's, it's been slammed. Every place is reserved because people want to get away. They want to get away from the masks. They want to get away from the gloves. They want to get away from everything. They want to get out in the open. They want to just breathe and be free. Chris told me last week about being at the base camp. He said it was just so nice for several days to not have to worry about any of that stuff and to just be out in the open and to be free. While we were there, people were coming and going, and there was one family that came up uh, one afternoon, and they had driven from Utah. I could see the plates, but the lady got out of the car, and she walked down to the river like this. <laughs> Serious. That's what people are facing. They want to be free, and they want to get out and camp under the stars, see the river, have, be a, have a campfire. And that's what it was like for the Jews. It was a great time of joy to go all the way to Jerusalem to set up their, their tents and to rejoice at the harvest and to just have a great time with campfires and telling stories and being out in the open. And it was a time of great joy. And Jesus is going to go up to this camping festival and it is going to be his last trip to Jerusalem. Because once he gets there, he's going to be put to death about six months later. Everything is going to be compacted in in the book of John as we go forward. So chapter 7 and 8 are talking about this great feast. And we're going to talk more about it in the next few weeks. Um, Water is involved. Light is involved. Celebration is involved. And those play prominently in what happens and what Jesus teaches about. But at the end of chapter 8... After some confrontation, Jesus is going to make this great statement, I am that I am. It's probably the most direct statement that he is the great I am. But there's going to be confrontation moving up to that point. And that confrontation that Jesus is experiencing is the same kind of confrontation that you can expect as a believer. So like Jesus, and just as it happened to Jesus... Verses 1 through 9, the world will hinder us from following God's will. The world will hinder us. The world will keep us. The world will pull us back. The world will deter us from following God's will. And that's what happens with Jesus through his brothers. They try to keep him from doing what God's will is. Verse verse 1 says, after these things... Jesus was walking in Galilee after what things? After the, the, uh, the bread of life discourse and the walking on water and the feeding of the 5,000. And things kind of end on a sad note, don't they, in chapter 6, remember? After uh, Jesus t- 
tells them these wonderful things about, I'm the bread of life. If you believe in me, you will live forever. But you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And some of his disciples go, Ooh, no, no thanks. That's too weird. And they left him. They walked away from him because they didn't understand. And Jesus said to his disciples, the rest that were left, he said, are you going to leave me too? And the high note is, is uh, Peter says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? But then it does end on a bad note because Jesus said, I chose you all. And I chose you all even knowing that one of you is a devil. Thus, setting up for us the confrontation that is going to come between Jesus and the devil and those who are of the devil. He is going to be rejected. So, by the way, um, all of that happened, um, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the bread of life discourse, that all happened about uh, two to three days total, maybe just two days, all of that. And at the beginning of that, it said, you may remember back in the beginning of chapter 6, the, the Feast of Passover was near. Now we have the Feast of Booths is near. So when it says Jesus was walking in Galilee, six months has passed since the Bread of Life discourse. What was he doing? We don't know. He was walking in Galilee. He was ministering probably, but he was just biding his time, waiting for the time. But it says that he was unwilling to walk in Judea, that is, uh, uh, down in Jerusalem, because they were seeking to kill him. The Jews were the religious leaders. That's what it said. Uh, the scriptures tell us when he left Jerusalem the last time, and he knows that they're still seeking to kill, kill him. So verse three says, uh, verse two rather, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, was near them. And then there's that translation of good speed that says uh, the camping season was upon them. And um, here is what it was: uh, the feast of booze. Um, in Leviticus 23, it says this: on exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, which is in the fall, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. And with it a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute forever and ever throughout all your generations you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths, tents, sukkot, tabernacles for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that the generations may know that I had, I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The festival served two purposes, to celebrate the fact that the, the harvest has passed, a successful harvest. And so people come and there's great joy. They're no longer working in the fields. And so they, they erect all these tents and these booths made out of either, it could be tents themselves or out of boughs. 
And uh, everybody comes to Jerusalem and they pitch a tent. And even those who lived in Jerusalem would, would pitch a booth outside their house or on the roof. And everybody did the same thing. And everybody sat around campfires telling stories. And it was called the feast because it was the most popular of all the feasts. More popular than, than Passover or pa- Pentecost or the Day of Atonement. This was the most popular holiday of the Jews. The only thing I can think of is uh, going to a state fair. They're probably canceled this year, right? The North Idaho State Fair and the Spokane County. But when you go there, everybody's happy and they're celebrative. And and you get to see all the the things that people have made. We like to do that stuff. Some people just go for the carnival. But you get get to eat the foot-long corn dogs and the elephant ears and all those things. And you celebrate and you feast. And it's really uh, the, the end of the harvest, Celebration, that's what this was like. Full of great joy. Now we'll say have more to say about this as we go on. So his brothers say this to him. Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. Now I want to jump ahead to verse five, because it's very important. Because verse five says, For not even his not even his brothers were believing in him. His brothers were not Christians. His brothers did not believe in him in the salvation sense. And they say to him, look, come on, bro, it's time for the feast. And maybe he was sensing these things were coming and maybe he was contemplative. I don't know. Perhaps they thought he was depressed and they wanted to encourage him as their brother. And they said, look, man, you need to go up to Judea and your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. We don't know exactly what that means. It may mean that his disciples have already gone ahead. It may mean that they saw that many of his disciples walked away from him and they thought, ouch, they hurt for their brother. Maybe if you just go to Jerusalem and you do some miracles, some of those people might come back to you, perhaps. But here's the main problem with the brothers. Verse 4. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They knew that there was messianic fervor. They knew that many people thought that he was the Messiah. They might have even thought that he was the Messiah. But they had the same misconception as the other people. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to work miracles and he's going to do lots of good things for me. All self-centered. And so they, they said, look, you need to go up there. You can't be, how can you be a Messiah in Galilee? You know, it's like Green Acres. You need to go to Spokane. You need to go open where people are going to see you. You can't be a secret Messiah. And that's actually true, isn't it? You can't be a Messiah in secret. So you need to go to Jerusalem where all the people are. Do some miracles and make yourself known publicly to the world. Put yourself out there. Toot your own horn. Make people like you. Do great things so the people will follow you. Is that the way of God? Is that the the path that God had chosen for you? Was that the path that God had chosen for Jesus? What is the way of the world, by the way? John would say in 1 John, Do not love the world or the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Many people talk about things that are systemically wrong these days. You know what is systemically wrong with the world? It has fallen. It is sinful. It is evil. All of it, not just racism, not just a, a certain race, or not just a, um, a, a, a structure of government. Everything. The lust of the eyes is materialism. That rules the roost in our, in our world, doesn't it, in our society. You've got to have the best, the newest, the fastest. If you don't, then you're, you're behind. You're a step behind. The lust of the flesh is that, that physical gratification of myself, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, food, whatever it may be, that I'm in this for myself and for my own physical gratification. And the boastful pride of life, boy, do we ever see that today, don't we? In our government, it's all about power. That's what the boastful pride of life is. Power. If you have power, you know the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's the world system. And his brothers say to him, go and show yourself to the world. Put yourself out there. Jesus, uh, no thanks. I don't have any part of that. In fact, in 1 John 5, John would go on to say this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We don't like to talk about the evil one very much. The whole world, all that's going on out there, guess who's calling the shots? 2 Corinthians 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We, ladies and gentlemen, we have an enemy, and the enemy is in the world, and the world system, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it is all part of the enemy. We're in spiritual battle. Go and make yourself known to the world, Jesus said. No, no thanks. I don't have any part of that. In fact, he said this. My time has not yet come, but your time is always importune. Meaning you know, there was a specific time in the sovereignty of God that he would go up to Jerusalem, up to the feast. For his brothers who had not aligned themselves with him yet, and they have not uh, believed in him, you can go up to the festival anytime you want. But God has a specific time for him. And then he says this, The world cannot hate you, brothers, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus came to defeat the, the God of this world. Jesus came to reveal the sins of this world, and that's what he's going to do. It's not pleasant. It's confrontational. It is difficult, and that's what he's going to do up until the di time he dies because people don't like having their sin exposed, do they? Do you? No. We don't like confessing our sin. But that's what Jesus came to do. 
And so his brothers, hey, the world loves them because they're fine. They're part of the world. There's no reason for the world to hate them. But they hate Jesus because he is not part of the system. He is part of God's kingdom of righteousness. Having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Here are a couple of lessons. Worldly people give worldly advice. And the world will pull us away from following God's will. His brothers were worldly. They were brothers. Uh, Unfortunately, um, sometimes family are biggest offenders for us. Even though well-intentioned might give us contrary advice from what God would say. Anybody ever experienced that? Even our family can lead us astray. Even our family can pull us from following God's will. You're going to do what? That's stupid. Remember when I graduated from college and decided to go to seminary, and I went and talked to my dad, and um, I um, uh, told him what I was going to do, and he was not a believer, and he thought it was the stupidest thing in the world that I would give up my degree and go away to a seminary in Texas. He thought it was just ridiculous. What a waste. What if I had taken my dad's advice? How my life would be different. But I knew what God had called me. And later on, by the way, when I was deciding whether or not to go into active duty as a Navy chaplain, I sought my dad's advice just to, to honor him. And there's another side of this. And one of the things that he said, sometimes we have to, we have to be discerning when we're getting bad advice. Sometimes good advice can come from worldly people too. And one of the things he said to me, I'll never forget, he said simply, it's a dangerous job, the military. I had a wife and six kids, he said it's a dangerous job. He was right. World War II vet had had, uh, been in England during the Blitz, and so he he knew uh, it was a dangerous job, and I found out it was indeed. But for the most part, we all have family members who say, don't take that job, that would be ridiculous. Don't marry her. Marry her. Don't, don't, take the, don't go to school. Go to this school. And they tell us all sorts of things, and we pray, and we seek counsel, and oftentimes the counsel we get is wrong because it's worldly advice. And we need to be careful. We are to seek godly counselors. It doesn't mean we can't go to our parents or our brother and our sister and see what they think, but in the end we must follow God's will, not that of the world. This is true in counseling, by the way. Uh, I spent 23 years in the Navy and and worked side by side with lots of really good counselors. But I'll tell you what, I went to the same training that they went to. And the philosophy of counseling that that is current today is not the philosophy of counseling that was 10 years ago and not the philosophy of counseling that was five years before that and not the philosophy of counseling that will be five years in the future. It's ever changing in the world. And so you must be careful. Attorneys are the same way. We know that. I mean, there are lots of good, godly Christian attorneys, but sometimes they will ask you to do things and they will give you advice that is based upon just simple law and, the, and, and it may go against your conscience or biblical advice. All I'm saying is this. Seek godly counsel from godly people and be wary of the world because the world will always pull us away from following God's will. The second lesson 
Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That's a quote from James 4, right? James says this, you adulteresses, idolaters, he means, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Think of Jesus' brothers. They had aligned themselves with the world. Therefore, the world didn't hate them. Hey, think about that. If the world thinks you're pretty cool and and doesn't have a problem with you, there could be a problem, right? Uh, Not that we go about ruffling feathers and, and seeking people to hate us. No, no, no. But it is promised, and the principles are true, that if we are going to live for Christ, we're going to ruffle some feathers. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We want to avoid... Uh, you know, two different extremes because some Christians think that, well, um, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, I'm just going to wall myself off from the world. I'm not going to watch anything, any any media. I'm not going to talk to my neighbors. When I go to the lunchroom, I'm going to eat by myself and I'm going to pray and make sure everybody sees me. But I'm not going to be very friendly because I can't be a friend of the world. Some of you have been there. People do that. Christians do that. They have no Christian friends. I've rather unbelieving friends. They don't even know any unbelievers. That's wrong. On the other hand, in the name of evangelism sometimes, many Christians want to relate so badly and to be so relevant that they become indistinguishable from the world. That's the opposite extreme. That we become jaded. We become just like the world. We do what they do. We talk like they talk. We think like they think. We are to be more like Jesus than to be a friend of sinners. But they, Jesus did. Do you think Jesus ever compromised his principles and righteousness to win people to himself? No. He gave them a godly message. So, as with Jesus, the world is going to seek to pull you away from what God's will is for your life. Whom you will marry, where you live, the job you do, the ministry you're in, whatever it may be that you're seeking God's will, the world is always going to pull you and tug you back toward its will. Don't let it happen. Our walk with God is the thing that keeps us on the track. Secondly, in verses 10 through 15, the world will reject us when we obey God's will. It's one thing to be pulled away from obeying God's will, but once we decide this is God's will and I'm going to obey and do what he's called me to do, guess what? You're not going to win any friends from the world. You will be rejected. You will be judged, in fact, for that. So it says this in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. This was a, there was a specific time in the sovereignty of God where Jesus was going to go up to Jerusalem, and he went up as if in secret. Not, it, that means like secret, incognito. In other, in other words, he didn't go publicly, I'm going to put myself out there before the world. He went somewhat incognito. Maybe he put on a mask you know, so people could recognize him. Or maybe he put on a cloak and he held it over his face. He probably did not go with his disciples. He might have just gone up alone and he just kept to himself because he didn't want to draw attention. But, too bad, people knew he was coming. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? 
He wasn't at the last Passover. Last time we saw him was the previous Passover. And they were loggerheads with him. And they, they had probably heard the stories. People were saying, yeah, he fed 5,000. They're going, yeah, right. No, really, he did. And they know that they've got problems because this messianic fervor is growing and people are starting to talk and they're expecting him to come to the feast. And they had a plot to kill him. And they were lying in wait for him. Why? He's doing the will of the Father. He's being rejected by them. And so will you be when we do God's will. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were seeking to kill him. But then there was the crowd, the throngs of the pilgrims who had come from Galilee and Judea and those uh, uh, Greek-speaking who had come from the diaspora, the, the, the spreading of the Jews. They all came for this festive time, this joyful feast of booths. And there was a lot of grumbling among the crowds. It doesn't mean complaining, but they had a lot of low talking beyond, beyond the surface. In other words, a lot of gossip going around about Jesus. Some were saying, well, he's a good man. And some were saying, no, he's leading people astray. Seems like there were two views of Jesus. He's a good man. He's leading people astray, which means he's a deceiver, which means he's evil. So you basically have two views. He's good or he's evil. Both are wrong, aren't they? We know he's not evil, but he's more than good. He's not just a good man. That's part of, you know, the... The, uh, the view and identity of Jesus is always going to be controversial, even for us. And, and you're going to meet people who say, yeah, he was a good man and a good teacher and a philosopher. No, he is the Lord. He's the Lord of all. They judged him wrong. Either way, either as good or as evil, as evil they judged him wrong. But, but notice verse 13. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. That isn't the spirit of the age today, isn't it? The spirit of this world. People want to be on the right side of history, right? And how do you know what the right side is? Somebody's going to tell you, right? Somebody's going to tell you what's right. The cabal, the power brokers, whether it's news media or politicians, they're going to say, this is what is right. And so once, once we decide what is right, then you can get on board with it. So here's the, the frivolous nature of the crowds. Uh, they don't want to get on the wrong side of the, the power brokers, the Jews. So if they say that he's a good man, yes, Jesus is a good man. If they conclude that he's an evil man, he's an evil man. We'll, we'll go there. Nobody's thinking for themselves. They want to be on the right side of the crowd. Let me tell you something about the spirit of the world right now. If something is really, really popular and everybody's going that direction, it's probably wrong. It's probably wrong. That's, that truth is always narrow, and yet the world wants us to, wants everybody to, to fall hook, line, and sinker for the truth of the world. And these people were not interested in the truth. So, verse 14, when it was now in the midst of the feast, seven days, probably a Wednesday maybe, uh, whatever the day was, but he, he goes up to the temple and he began to teach. Remember he went, uh, he, he was walking in Galilee. He didn't want to go up to Jerusalem. His brother said, you need to go up. And he said, no, I don't want to go up. He finally went up and he goes up secretly. 
It seems like he doesn't really want to, to get out there and put himself before people. But here, in the most prominent place, at the most prominent time, he makes himself known. In other words, this is God's timing. This is the moment for him to teach. doesn't say what he taught, by the way, but we do get the, re- the reaction of the people. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having been educated? You know what they're doing here? They're rejecting him. It sounds uh, on, the, on the face of it like, uh, well, they're, they're astonished. They think he's pretty good. No, they don't. This man is a form of contempt. This man. How does he know his ABCs? That's kind of what the, how is he learned? And then, he's, then they say he is uneducated. Yeah, he's quoting scripture and he seems, seems to be saying some things. It's kind of astonishing. We don't understand it. But he has no credentials. For a rabbi to get up and teach, what do you have to do? You have to name drop. I was taught here. I went to this school. This, this is the rabbi that taught me. And so-and-so rabbi, he says this, all Jesus is quoting is whom? God. And so they look at him with contempt, and they reject him out of hand because he is representing the Father in truth, and he's not playing their little games. The lessons for us. The world despises those who do not meet their worldly expectations. The world has expectations of what you should be and where, you know, the, the credentials that you should have. And we're all, we're all about lining up uh, of, uh, experts on everything on television, right? And this person is an expert on this and an expert on this, has the right credentials. Jesus wasn't concerned about that. The Father wasn't concerned about that. And the world despises us when we don't meet those expectations. They look at people in ministry and, okay, so what? So they went to some silly little school, right? But they didn't go to Harvard, now did they? Or Oxford or or Yale. And that's the way the world looks at us as believers. By the way, um, some people use verses like this to say, well, you know, Jesus just went out there and taught. And so pastors and ministers, they don't need the formal training and go to school. You just depend upon the spirit. This was Jesus, remember? This was Jesus Christ, the son of God, who knows all things. And he said, go and make disciples and teach them. Study to show yourself approved. We don't trust in our credentials in the schools that we went to, but still we must trust in God, in God alone for our power. Second of all, the world will judge us and the world will reject us for our relationship with Christ. You are thought of as stupid. You are thought of as uneducated. You are thought of as ill-informed because you believe in Jesus. I mean, come on, right? The world has much more to offer than some good man who lived over 2,000 years ago, just be aware of it because that is the ridicule of the world that comes our way. But you know what? Just as they were wrong about Jesus, they're wrong about you. They're wrong about your faith. They're wrong about your Savior. They're wrong. 
because we know whom we serve. In verses 16 through 24, we see then how they judge Jesus himself. And we say this, the world will judge Jesus to be foolish and false. And so us. They judge him to be foolish. and They judge him to be false. They do not accept his words. In, um, um, in verses 16 through 18, we see Jesus' authority is from the Father that he glorifies. His authority comes from the Father. What they're saying with all the credentials, and he doesn't, he's uneducated, they're saying he has no authenticity, he has no credentials, he, therefore he has no authority, therefore we reject him. So Jesus gives them what his authority is all about. He says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. He's been consistent with that all along. I and the Father are one. What I say is the Father's words. What the Father's words are my words. I speak for the Father. And then he says, if anyone is willing to do his will... He will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He basically says, you guys don't understand, but here is patently obvious. If you really believe in God, you'll understand my words. If you have ears to hear, if you are willing to obey, if you are willing to conceive, to think, and to ponder, and to believe all that I'm saying, then you'll understand it. But if you've closed yourself off and you are unwilling to believe, there is no hope for you. And then he says in verse 18, he who speaks from from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is speaking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. The other way that they can know that what he's saying is true is this. I'm not like the rest of your teachers. Because he is seeking the glory of the Father. He's not seeking himself. He's not seeking to put himself out there before the world and to toot his own horn. He is speaking about the Father very humbly. That is what he is doing. The lesson for us is this. We should be known by our humble dedication to God's glory. It's what Valley Bible Church should always be about. It shouldn't be about our pastors being known, our programs being known, our website being known, our services being known, our building being known, any of these things. What we are about is the glory of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything should be about him, and when it's not, then we're off. If we are tooting our own horn before the world, we're off. And Jesus humbly said, my role is to glorify God in all things. That was his purpose. So his authority is from the Father. But then what he does in verses 19 through 20 is he calls them out. He calls out their murderous ways because that's what they are. Verse 19, he says, did not Moses give you the law? And yet not one of you carries it out. You have the law, O Jews. He's talking to the crowd. But none of you keep it. Yeah, you're here at the festival thinking you're law keepers, but you're not. You know why? Because you seek to kill me. That's not very neighborly, is it now? 
That's not very law-like, is it? That you're being murderous in your heart, wanting to kill me. And what is their answer? You have a demon. Who wants to kill you? You're deranged. We will be thought of as well as foolish and deranged. You know what the lesson here is? The world calls evil good and good evil. What worse thing could someone say to the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, you are the devil? It's the exact opposite of it, isn't it? Isaiah says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does this sound like the world in which we live? Absolutely. The world will always be guilty of telling you the exact opposite of the truth. The world will say, this is true. Be wary when it says this is true because it's probably not true. The opposite is probably true. In the same way that they're calling evil good and good evil and telling Jesus, you're a devil. So they will say the same things of us and about our Lord and about our faith. But then we see he calls them out for something else. Jesus calls out their heartless legalism. Verse 21. He said to them, I did one deed and you all marveled. You know what the deed is? He's talking about the last time he was in Jerusalem. He healed this crippled man on the Sabbath at the, at the pool of Bethesda. And then he made himself equal to be with God. And they raked him over the coals, and that's when they began to want to kill him, and they hated him so much because they said he was a Sabbath breaker. But they are heartless in their legalism, and he calls them out because he says this. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the Father. Circumcision predated the law. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a sign of the covenant that one day God's people would be made a nation. Under the law was a sign of the covenant that they were part of the nation. And all young males, newborn, were to be circumcised on the eighth day as Jesus was. But he says this, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. Well, wait a minute. What are you doing circumcising people on the Sabbath? Isn't that a day of rest? If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses is not broken, why on earth are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You see, when a baby was born, they were to be uh, uh, circumcised on the eighth day. What if the eighth day happens to be the Sabbath? They did circumcision on the Sabbath. Why didn't they say, well, we can't do that. We need to do this on the seventh or the ninth day. Well, then they'd be breaking that law, right? So somehow they reasoned there was some hierarchy of laws and we'll say, okay, we're going to sacrifice or we're going to circumcise babies on the Sabbath. And it was probably for young mothers and, and fathers. Yes, this baby was born timely that even on the Sabbath with great joy, we will circumcise our son. And Jesus is basically saying the same thing. What joy there should have been that this man was made whole on the Sabbath, not just a little part of a little baby as a, as a symbolic gesture, but this whole man. 
was made well on the Sabbath, you are legalistic and heartless and merciless. That's the problem. They circumcised on the Sabbath, and they realized, they believed that they were keeping the law. So he says this in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You are going to be judged by the world. They judge Jesus to be foolish, a demon. They judged him to be false, as we will be. But they judged him, and, and he's, he's telling them, make proper judgments. I read recently that uh, the, the most well-known verse in the Bible used to be John 3.16, and that most Americans could quote John 3.16. Do you know what the most uh, well-known verse in the Bible is now? Most Americans can quote it word for word. Judge not, lest you be judged. Totally misunderstand it. Because Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, for in the standard that you judge others, you will be judged. And then he goes on to say, make judgments. We make judgments all the time. And even here he says, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Use the standard of God or the standard of the world. What will be the standard by which we judge things? Truth and righteousness? or the standard of the world. So in conclusion, I give you a lesson as a question. By what standard will you evaluate the world and everything in it? According to the standard of the world, or by the truth and righteousness of Jesus Christ? What will we choose? We must be wary we must be aware, we must have our eyes open, recognizing that the world is always pulling us, always judging us, always calling us one thing, but we must evaluate all things by the standard of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And we should be people who joyfully, joyfully, Obey him, motivated by grace, because God delights in, in grace. Would you prepare your cup and your bread? We invite you to the Lord's table. One of the things that Jesus would say in just a few short chapters is this, in chapter 12, speaking of judgment. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. The devil, Satan, our enemy, the world system, is going to be defeated. How? And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Our enemy, the world system, will be judged and will be found wanting. We have been judged and we have found to be sinful. Jesus has been judged by the Father and found to be righteous, but his, our judgment goes upon him. And that's what this is all about. That's just, this is the gospel message. The gospel message is he was judged that we would not be judged. He died that we might live. And he gave to us the Lord's table as a way of saying all things for the sake of the gospel.
All things for the glory of God. Keep your eye on the prize. Week after week, judge according to the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Father, for this bread and this cup. For it represents our Savior's life on this earth. That he lived a life of holiness. That he was rejected for his righteousness. He was judged improperly as we are. We thank you for this cup. It represents that his very life was poured out that we might live. And we pray that as we partake of this bread and this cup, we declare the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. And we thank you for the faith and the hope that that brings our hearts in the midst of a world that is broken and dying and in a world that rejects the Savior and us. Thank you that we are accepted by you in the beloved. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me.